A reading from the book of Acts, chapter 17, starting with verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not very far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from Peter's first letter, chapter 3, starting with verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said to his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you always. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot accept, because it neither sees nor knows him. But you know him, because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And in a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live and you will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and observes them is the one who loves me. And whoever loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and reveal myself to him. The Gospel of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms. We are so glad that you're here and celebrate this day with us. Um, We'll talk a little bit more uh, about moms in a little bit, uh, but we're so thankful for you and the role of mothers in our world and in our lives. Um, Today is, I said earlier, it's the seventh Sunday of Easter. I'm just a little off track. It's the sixth Sunday of Easter. (laughs) And... uh, um, As I've reflected on our readings this week, my heart has been tugged in a particular direction. Uh, My hope as we hear our words this morning is for us to know that each of us, God looks to each of us with nothing but love. There's nothing behind the back of God. (laughs) There's nothing behind the back of Jesus that is kind of a trick or a, I love you, but no, God loves us fully and completely. These readings are in different contexts. So Paul is speaking to a group who are far away from God. Peter is exhorting a church that's suffering and feeling God's absence. And Jesus tells his disciples that they are called to something different from what they've experienced. But they're not alone. God's very spirit is with them. So I want to start with the book of Acts and our Acts reading today. And I'm not going to indulge myself. You guys know that know me well know I love history. I love the context behind all the scripture passages and could just talk forever about the history. And I just had to rein myself back this week. So it pared it down. But I want to talk a little bit about what's going on in the background of Paul's visit to Athens. Paul is waiting for Silas and Timothy. And he started talking to a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, these two major groups of philosophy at the time. And he's talking to them about the one true God and the resurrection from the dead. In fact, elsewhere, we think that when he says he's speaking about Jesus and the resurrection from the dead, it looks like they misunderstand him. So it looks like they think he's talking about two new gods. So Jesus and then Anastasia or Anastasis, which is the Greek word for resurrection. So they get a little bit confused of, okay, what are these new gods that you're talking about? And verse 18 has told us Paul's really distressed when he goes to Athens because the city is full of idols. There's just idols everywhere. Now, being surrounded by idols is not a new thing for the people of God. As you read the story of the scriptures, you see that God's people are always surrounded whenever they're in uh, foreign lands. They're surrounded by all kinds of idols and other gods. Jews in exile and in the diaspora had to learn what does it mean to be foreigners, people who are true to the one most high God in a pagan land. Now, there had been this kind of wall that stood between Athens, which was such a center of philosophy and had so many different understandings of the gods and so much diversity, and then Jerusalem that had this understanding that there is one God who created everything, 
So there was this like metaphorical wall between Athens and Jerusalem that was never crossed. And yet in this story with Paul, we see that boundary begin to change. We see God beginning to reach into Athens in a unique way. Now, the Athenians are far from God, just like all of us before the good news. It's not that, and we've heard this, I've heard this preached before, but it, it's not that they were so great at philosophy and they just understood the world so well that the Greeks were kind of halfway there and they just needed to get all the way there with the gospel. No, they were far away from God. Paul is grieved because they're far off. They're, working, they're worshiping fake things and it doesn't even make sense. Yet, as Willie James Jennings says, Paul will do something absolutely stunning and marvelously productive with his outrage. So he's outraged by all of these foreign idols, but Jennings says he will not turn away from the idolaters, but toward them. So God, through Paul, opens a door for the Greeks into God's new world. Of course, we see this all over the book of Acts that we see all over the place there's these doors to the Gentiles, to the foreigners, to the outsiders, and God is welcoming them in and bringing them in over and over again. Everything has changed. So Paul's in a conversation with these philosophers, and then they take him to this place called the Areopagus, okay, in verse 19. This is a court. So Paul's on trial for what he's saying. Something about what he's saying is so controversial, so threatening, that they would need to take him to a trial. And he defends himself. But he also proclaims the truth of Jesus, challenging the foundations of the various worldviews. Athens had a reputation of being really a tolerant city. There were so many different gods, so many different ways of worshiping and belief systems. But anytime there was a threat, there was something that was seen as a god that was kind of greater than the other gods or, or, or something that was threatening to the entire system that was quickly renounced by this very controlled system. Athens, if you know your history, was the site of the trial of Socrates, 399 BC. Socrates, the accusation against him was that he was corrupting the young and he was introducing foreign divinities. So he's bringing in foreign gods, they were saying, and that was a threat. So Paul is on trial because he's seen as bringing in this God who's foreign, who is far away from them, who's not Greek, and it has a different understanding, and this could be a threat to their entire system. Now, there's two major belief systems that are mentioned here, and we only, we'll just touch on them really quickly, but the first one is the Epicureans. And the Epicureans believe that the gods, if they exist at all, they're really, really far away. So they're really, really distant. And you can't know them. You shouldn't even try to know the gods because they're so far away. And they have nothing to do with human beings. But this is what made them so great. This is what made their virtue so great for the Epicureans. Because of their distance, they didn't get rocked by the stuff that we did down here. right? They, didn't, they weren't moved by that. Because they're so far away, everything we deal with in this life, all the natural world stuff, it all has a natural explanation. The gods aren't involved at all in this whole thing. So the idea for the Epicureans was if you want to be happy, if you want to live a life that's good and peaceful, moderate your desires. Live peaceful and quiet life, lives. Don't be troubled by anything including the big questions like meaning and significance in the world. What was interesting as you look throughout history is this view was really common with the Epicureans, 
And then it kind of was dormant for a long time in history. It, it didn't really, not a lot of people thought this way for a long time until the Age of Enlightenment. During the Age of Enlightenment, when modern philosophy began to emerge, we see this idea of natural um, ex explanations for everything, there not being gods or gods maybe not being involved in the world began to emerge again. And that's really been the dominant worldview of our world for so long. Now, there was another group here at this time. So that was the Epicureans, and then there were the Stoics. The Stoics didn't believe the gods were far away. They actually believed they were really, really close. So the gods and the world were interconnected, if not fully intertwined with each other. The Stoics believed there was a divine life or a logos in all human beings, a divine spark. And in an interesting move, Paul quotes this Greek poet named Epimenides in his defense. He says this, he says to these philosophers who are here, for in him we live and move and have our being. And he's quoting one of their philosophers. Epimenides wrote this of Zeus, the high god of the Greek world, but Paul attributes it to the one true God. Paul then quotes a Stoic poet named Eratus, who lived between 315 and 240 BC. It says of God, we are his offspring. So when Eratus wrote of this, he says, we all have a divine spark. We're all children of God. We're all the offspring of God. Well, what Paul is doing here, he's not saying I'm a Stoic, just like you guys are, but he's expressing familiarity with their way of thinking, and he's allowing that to point them to something new and revolutionary. Paul, too, believed human beings are children of God, but it's because we are made in God's image. Paul wouldn't see the world and the gods as intertwined or God as, the, as intertwined or the same thing, but says that impulse that causes you to think they are the same thing, that divine spark that you feel and you experience in other, in other people, that's the impulse that may be drawing you towards the God who wants you to know him. This is an act of God's love. Paul speaking to them is an act of love. He's saying to the Athenians, God is reaching towards you. He desires to know you. God loves the Athenians. God loves Gentiles. God loves each of us, no matter how far we are from the community at a given moment. Now think for a minute about, I, I dwelled this week with this idea that Paul was furious when he saw these pagan idols. What would make Paul so furious? And I thought about it for a while. Like, he responds with love. Why is it anger that he responds at first with? Well, it makes sense when we remember what idols are. They are attempts to control the world around us. Idols present themselves as gods, but they're really gods of our own making. They're gods that we think we can see and touch and control. When someone crafts an idol, they make a god, they make God who we want God to be. Paul also points out they even have, out of all the pagan gods they have, they have another god that, that the inscription says, to an unknown god. <laughs> Paul says it this way, so you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. It's pretty harsh, but he says that you don't even know the god you worship. You have this god here, you, you don't even know. But again, notice the answer is not to smite the ignorant people. He's moving towards them. I think this is so critical so important for us to hear in our polarized world today. When the tendency 
is always to turn away from those we disagree with, to marginalize and to reject those who are different from us. This is never God's posture. A new day has dawned, Paul is saying. With Christ's resurrection, the world has opened up in a profound way. So Paul doesn't greet the Greeks' way of living with revulsion. No, they're to be fully embraced. God loves the Greeks so much and desires for them to be drawn away from their idolatry. Well, then Paul tells the story of the God who made the world. And he says that God's not contained by the world. In fact, God is not made by human hands, is what he's saying. He's the creator of everybody, not just the Jews. He's not just a tribal deity, but he's created everybody, everywhere, in, in every time. The calling, then, is to repentance. He basically, and, and this always intimidates us, I think, when we say the word repentance, because it's, we've thought about street preachers on the corner with signs, and we've thought about all that kind of stuff. But repentance, this idea is simply there's a better way. Turn towards the better way. And for Paul, he says, there's a new judge who is bringing true justice and righteousness, and a day has been set when he will put the world right. But this judge is not an imperial judge, not a dominating figure who sees us as a threat that needs to be controlled. No, this is the judge who has life. How do we know that? Because God has raised Jesus from the dead. This means death no longer has the final say over our lives. We are truly living in a new world. One of the things, one last historical thing, and I'll put all that aside, but one of the founding myths of this place, the Areopagus, this court, was there was a poet who wrote about when it was founded and when it was started and what was at the heart of it and how Apollos is actually the one who created it, who brought it into being. And one of the founding myths said, when a man dies and his blood is spilled on the ground, there is no resurrection. So that was the foundation, one of the founding myths of the Areopagus, no resurrection. It's not possible. Well, in this very court, Paul reintroduces the idea of resurrection says, not only is it theoretically possible, it has happened in Jesus. Okay, so what does that have to do with us? Well, I think this story may challenge us into our own philosophies. What is it that we trust in our world and in our lives today? You may look at this and feel like we have nothing in common with the Greeks. We don't have statues in our home that we bow down to, most of us. We don't debate about the relevance of the gods in the public square. But what are the things that we think have the final say in our world? The things which run the show. Think about money. Like even when we talk about the economy, you know, we talk about it in like God-like mythical terms. What's happening to the economy? Is it shifting today? Is it moving? What can we do to change or to sacrifice to the economy in order for it to shift? We speak of that in God-like terms, don't we? Right? It's mythic and overarching for us. Well, the Bible gives this God a name, Mammon. <laughs> what about our political ideologies? I think Americans, we can come really close at times to the imperial theology of some of the Roman Empire when we think, which God or mythology is going to win in 2024? <laughs> is going to save us? Or perhaps our gods are the ability to defend ourselves. 
to keep ourselves safe. In what ways does resurrection challenge us in this? The world's a different place. Those things don't run the show. They don't have the final word. We see such a connection here in the epistle reading, Peter's writing to a suffering church. He tells them in verse 13, it's like a simple question, but he's like, hey, when you do good, who's going to hurt you? It's basically like, just do, do good. Just do good things, <laughs> which does like, okay, great. But why does he say that? Well, he says, because it will go well for you in suffering. This is a pragmatic statement from a pastor saying, hey, if you're suffering and, and you've got an oppressor over you, if you just continue to do good, that may help your, your oppression to go by faster, go by more quickly. He's appealing to this idea that when people feel respected, they generally respond with kindness, tend to respond with kindness. But he's not naive either. So he, con he continues on. He basically, he understands that the church will still face suffering even when they choose to do good. In fact, it looks like this church is facing, this church he's writing to is facing an existential crisis. So what happens when you do good and you still get persecuted or you still suffer? Even in our world today, I think we are told that if you just do the right thing, you should see a clear blessing from that. That if we, if we give to the poor, if we give our tithes and offerings, if we kind of get all our ducks in a row, we do uh, cross every, or dot every I and cross every T morally, if we check all the right boxes, we should be successful, at least moderately, right? We tend to kind of believe that. But the church in the first century is grappling with the fact this is not always the case. Often doing good only leads to more suffering. But Peter tells the church their circumstances don't have the final word. They have a greater hope. What is that greater hope? God's salvation of his people through Jesus Christ. And what has been accomplished in the cross and resurrection will reveal itself at the end of history. So Christians can have hope in the midst of all kinds of hardship. And then he says, when they share about their hope, the church should not be brash and haughty about it. Gentleness and respect should characterize their language, and that will help them to keep a good conscience. And when doing good doesn't seem to go right for us, Peter says, that doesn't mean turn to evil. So if you're doing good and you find it's not working out for you and you're still suffering, don't turn to evil. Don't stoop to the level of your oppressors with this because it's better to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. After all, Peter says, that's the posture of Christ who suffered in order to bring us to God. We can do all of this because we know our circumstances don't have the final word. God will ultimately make things right and establish justice. Okay, so our circumstances don't have the final word. There's another thing Peter says doesn't have the final word, and that's evil and dark spirits, <laughs> which this is where Peter gets into a place that we're reading and we start scratching our head. We have, okay, what does this have to do with us? So Peter starts talking about these spirits that have ruled the world since the days of Noah. He says, those don't have the final word either. These evil forces, and he talks about the days of Noah and all this kind of stuff. He's drawing from this popular book at the time called First Enoch, which promised that one day God will once and for all overthrow all of the evil forces. But Peter says, this day has come. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he proclaimed the resurrection to those forces, to those spirits. He told those things that hold the world captive, that keep the world restrained, there's a new sheriff in town. 
that the systems and structures of our broken world have had their day and they're finished. He is sovereign over the world. Now, I don't think this is too much of a stretch for us because as we look at our world, it seems like there are things, big structural systemic things that seem to be oppressing our world. And me, in and of myself, I I feel like, is there anything I can do about that? Is there any evil that I can, or any way that I can fix this and rectify this? As we look at systemic racism, we look at oppression, we look at the ways that the poor, there's a wealth inequality, and we look at the, uh, the state of our, even of creation and environmental issues and all these kind of things, we go, these are huge things, and what does this look like? But the good news for Christians to hear that, Paul, that Peter says is that these things do not have the final word that there is hope. If you've ever worked at a company and you've had a a new boss or somebody bought the company and you have a new kind of supervision, you'll notice that everything changes. Sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes things stay the same for a while and then they change gradually. Everybody gets a memo or a phone call or a visit from the new boss. Well, Jesus is proclaiming that to the powers that have held the world in bondage, they no longer have dominion. He is in charge. And this has incredible implications for us. This means no matter what you're facing today, suffering, your circumstances, your family issue that you're just wrestling with and and can't get through, the, the ways that the things that you're facing at work every day, that they do not have the final word. Some of you have faced a lot of challenges in your family. You've faced challenges on the job, and there are certain situations in life that we've all faced that just feel hopeless. How am I possibly going to get through this? And sometimes we go through things that are beyond circumstantial. So sometimes it's not just, hey, I'm having a rough week this week, or I'm going through something. There's like a heaviness we can't explain. There's a deep pain or shame and addiction and false beliefs and Things we can't seem to get past but seem to run our world. Well, the good news that Peter says is those things don't have the final word. Peter says there's another great flood, like the flood of Noah, and that's the flood of sin and death in our world. And Jesus has rescued us from that. In fact, baptism for Peter is that moment where we've gone through that great flood and we've come out the other side. The death and resurrection of Jesus is like being immersed and coming out of a great flood which wipes evil away. We die with him and we rise with him. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we have been forgiven. I find it fascinating how Peter like weaves in between the practical stuff. Hey, do good. Just do good stuff. And then the cosmic stuff. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, you've gone through a new flood and you are a new person. And it just goes back and forth and back and forth between the two. Now, I think about John Wesley's words, this famous quote. He says, do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can in all the places you can at all the times you can to all the people you can as long as you ever can. It's a simple call to do good. It's not moralism. Wesley would say that we really can only do good because of the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. But what he's saying is we're never to accept the ways of the world. When things don't work out for you and you're doing good, that doesn't mean turn to evil. 
Continue to do all the good that you can, even in the midst of your suffering. Because of resurrection, Christ has won the victory no matter what the world looks like. When there's evil and chaos and disorder, Christians are the one who tr- ones who trust that the way of Jesus is the better way. Really quickly, I want to just say a few words about our gospel reading. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And this gets really tricky because as Christians, we don't like to hear about obeying things. Um, That's so common, I've heard it so many times, for people to say Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. So it's not about rules and regulations, it's about relationship with God, which is true to a certain extent. But Christianity, in our minds, we feel like should just always come naturally, you know? But it seems that Jesus is saying here, you show your love to me by doing what I said to do. But religion seems like that's the only place we make that kind of separation. But there's a difference between relationship and religion. Those of you who are married, think about your marriage for a second. Hopefully you love your spouse, but if you've been married for longer than two minutes, you know there are some times where you do not feel in love with your spouse. Sometimes we get angry, frustrated with them. Yet we realize there's certain patterns of behavior that are necessary to cultivate and feed that really important relationship regardless of our feelings. That's a form of love. One of the great joys of tending a relationship is we trust the fruit that develops from that cultivation is worth it. Now, in those moments when, we, when we, uh, we give time or energy or we create those patterns of behavior in our life, does that mean that we're earning our partner's love because of our good deeds? No, we wouldn't say that. We're creating an environment for ongoing relationship through those regular disciplines of behavior. In fact, some commentators suggest that's actually what Jesus, the metaphor Jesus is using here. Because earlier in the chapter, if you remember from last week, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Well, in Judaism at the time, that was the language of a groom to a bride. The groom saying, I'm going to build a house for us to share together, to prepare it for you. Well, here he says, if you love me, keep my commands. So he's saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Be faithful to me while I'm gone. Yet, he also says, you don't have to do this alone. The Holy Spirit is with us. In a Jewish wedding, the groom, before he would go and prepare a place, would give the bride a deposit, a gift, promising his fulfillment to return to her. Well, here, if we continue that metaphor, the groom gives the bride the advocate, the Holy Spirit, as if to say, you're not alone. The Spirit is with you. I'm not asking you to be faithful on your own. I'm not asking you to obey my commandments all by yourself because that would be, you can't do that. You don't have to do it on your own. That's what my gift is for. And yet in the mystery of the Trinity, that gift that God has given us, the Holy Spirit is God himself, the Spirit of Jesus. So the mystery is not just a gift to help us. It's God's very present presence. Just as he and the Spirit are one, he and the Father are one. So Jesus says this, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. This was revolutionary in Judaism. 
There was never a thought that a Jewish Messiah, the liberator king, would actually be God in the flesh. But Jesus is saying he's not just a prophet who speaks for the Father. He's not just a representative of the Father. He and the Father are one. I want to end with this. Um, So Jesus says to his disciples that he'll give them the advocate, the Holy Spirit. Well, this is translated in all of our Bible, English Bible translations. There's three different translations you'll notice for this. The advocate, the helper, and the comforter. Well, which one is right? Well, all of them are right. <laughs> okay, they're all trying to come at this in a certain way. But as I was thinking about these different translations, I like each of them for a different reason. I'll tell you why. Some of us need to hear that God is our helper today that the Holy Spirit gives us what we need to accomplish, that we don't have to do it on our own strength, that we participate in the kingdom of God not by just doing a bunch of stuff, but by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. Many of us need to hear today that God is our comforter. This is in a se- this sense of presence, God's presence with us in the midst of difficulty. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've been sick or you've been in pain or you've gone through a difficult time and there's been Christian community to surround you and stand with you and sit in the midst of that time with you. It's powerful and it's often what gives us the strength in those moments. In fact, in the Jewish tradition, they have this tradition of sitting shiva. You have to be careful when you say it, but sitting shiva. And and when you sit with somebody, the idea is when they've gone through a loss, that you go and you simply sit with them silently. You bring food, but you don't offer any help. (laughs) You don't say any words that you think will encourage. You don't quote Bible scriptures to them. You just sit because there's something about presence. God is our comforter. I think about the Christians Peter is writing to who are suffering and not seeing any fruit for it. And then the last thing is many of us need to hear that God is our advocate. An advocate's responsibility is to stand up in a court of law and explain to the judge or jury how things are from their client's point of view, to plead the case. Well, in the Bible, of course, God is always the judge. The Holy Spirit here is the advocate who pleads our case. But in a beautiful twist, the advocate is also the judge himself because the Spirit Jesus, the Father, are one. I think about Paul on trial, facing his accusers in the Areopagus, but he knows they're not the true judge. Only God is the one who declares what is right. This is the God who does not leave us to our idols, our counterfeits, our fake ways of seeing the world. This is the God who dwells with us and loves us so much he's broken all of the boundaries in order to be near to us. Amen.